Asymmetrical Haircuts Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Felicity and Kabuga, one of the big three still on the run of the alleged perpetrators of the 1994 Rwanda genocide, was arrested this weekend in France. Yes, he spent uh, 24, uh, 25 years on the run, apparently in Germany, Belgium, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya and Switzerland. They're all named as places where he was, but he evaded justice for a very long time. Yeah, it's kind of a sense of where hasn't he been and uh, how come he just wasn't wasn't picked up anywhere. But anyway, he used to be one of Rwanda's richest men and he was deeply involved in the genocide. He's accused of actually being behind the creation of the Interahamwe militia that carried out the massacres during the genocide. And he was one of the founders of the RTLM, the Radio Television Libre des Mille Collines, which was the radio that was inciting people to carry out murder. So the Rwanda tribunal, the ICTR, indicted him for genocide and now the residual mechanism uh, which took over the work, which we tend to call, I tend to call the MICT uh, for a former acronym. They have lots of acronyms. This is the one we're using, the MICT, is planning to put him on trial. Probably in Arusha, there are some rumors of The Hague. We're going to talk about all of that because we have a guest to tell us more. Yeah, welcome, Stella Ndirangu. Are you there, Stella? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So Stella heads up the Africa program at Legal Action Worldwide. And as an international human rights lawyer, when she was at the International Commission of Jurists in Kenya, she monitored some of the trials in Rwanda of people being transferred by the ICTR to stand trial in Rwanda. So we wanted to start off, Stella, just by asking you whether the same as us, you were a bit surprised. Were you were you expecting uh, this arrest? Uh, because we haven't heard very much out of Arusha for a long while. So were you surprised? Um, I guess just like most of us, as you have rightly noted, I, it came as a surprise to me, particularly given the nature of the covert operations that have been ongoing to t- track down Kabuga. It's taken quite a bit of, a t- of time to, to locate him over a quarter of a century. So, and then, so it was quite surprising for most of us who did not have the in, information around the continued tracking of Kabuga. Then also given the previous false leads that we've seen uh, with this particular case where there were false leads that he was in Kenya, he was in Germany, which did not result in an arrest, it was easy to assume that perhaps Kabuga was no longer alive. And I have heard that from many people, including individuals in Rwanda, when I was working on the transfer cases there. And now that he's, he's been arrested, he's in France and he's currently in France. He still has to go uh, in front of a prosecutor to be extradited anywhere. Where do you think uh, he will be tried? The residual, the MICT has already said that they want to have this case. But uh, Rwanda is also doing its own genocide cases. Do you think Rwanda will challenge the MICT for this case? I think um, this arrest is very interesting. It has elicited very interesting discussions. And partly it's because of the profile of the accused person who has been arrested. In 2015, we saw the arrest of another fugitive who was still on the run when the ICTR closed down. Ladislas Ntangazo, he was arrested in DRC. But we didn't see a similar robust discussion about him because he was considered as one of the lower profile. His profile was much lower than that of Kabuga. I think the question around where Kabuga is to be tried, the direct answer lies in the statute, the ICTR statute, which is now the mixed statute. 
uh, because it had already set out and alienated who can be tried by the residual mechanism and who can be transferred to Rwanda for trial. And even when the ICTR was scaling down and closing down and transferring responsibility to the residual mechanism, particular steps were taken to ensure that it was clear who would be tried, who would be transferred to Rwanda if arrested in the future out of the list of fugitives, and who would be tried by the residual mechanism if arrested. And so um, at the time, the ICTR had two when it was doing its case completion strategy, it had two individuals who had been arrested who were considered to be not among the most senior leaders. And so those two were processed through the prosecutor's request and they were transferred to Rwanda. That is Bernard Munyagishari and Mr. Janu in Kindi. And then Ladislas, once he was arrested after the ICTR had already closed um, their cases, him, he was transferred directly from DRC into Rwanda. He never was taken to Arusha for any processing because the ICTR had already handed over those case files for the lower level leaders who who perpetrated the genocide to Rwanda. The ICTR then retained these three case files of the most senior leaders and those three were the Kabuga case file, uh, Bizimana and Piranha who were still at large. So the answer lies in the fact that there was already a system that had been identified. I understand you say that it's very clear from what they've said in their communications, what their plans were and, you know, uh, exactly who would be transferred, who they would keep, etc. But come on. I mean, the the pressure now is going to be very clearly that Rwanda should be able to try somebody so important to them. And Arusha is still, I mean, I know it's neighbouring, but it's still not Rwanda. Isn't the pressure going to be that? Yeah, the pressure is there and it's already there. I mean, and it's what is eliciting a lot of these discussions because I think it's important to consider that there were certain concerns initially as to the capacity of of uh, national jurisdictions being able to try these types of cases. And the initial cases that were transferred that have been tried by Rwanda were like test cases. Rwanda has tried these cases, not only from the residual mechanism, but others have also been transferred from other jurisdictions, like from two cases from the Netherlands, and one from Germany, and those have been tried in Rwanda. So in terms of testing the systems, then I think Rwanda has showcased the possibility of it having capacity to try these genociders. But now, and in fact, uh, victim groups are also sending appeals requesting that Kabuga be transferred to be tried in Rwanda. And increasingly, there is a case justification and, 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 and a case being given towards ensuring trials are held closer to where the crimes were held so that also it helps with the communal healing process for the communities that were affected. So that's true. So the law is one thing, but the reality on the ground is another. And so there's therefore the possibility of Rwanda uh, reaching out to the MICT and asking that now, given the track record that they have, that they then should be a reconsideration of, of, of the previous agreement that the most senior leaders would be tried by the MICT. Also, the other consideration is that the fact that the MICT has really, really scaled down. The ICTR, as it were, the people who worked on these cases, most of them have left, including the ICTR prosecutor. So what happens is, do we start resetting up another system to try Kabuga, yet there's an existing system that is running and making trials at the national before the national courts in Rwanda. 
But if you look at the the trial, it might even be uh, tricky for the MICT uh, because Kabuga is uh, Mr. Finance uh, and it's all about how he bankrolled uh, everything. But that's something that really didn't come up in a lot of MICT cases. So they will possibly also have trouble with doing the kind of forensic accounting bit of how he fits into the genocide, won't that be also a very complicated case to take on for a Rwandan uh, uh, justice system? I think for both uh, MICT and either for either jurisdiction, Rwanda or MICT, further investigations need to be done because by, at the time of the indictment, the Kabuga indictment was in the 90s. So there's a lot, I mean, a lot of time has lapsed and they need to mesh the evidence to, to be able to be responsive to the allegations against Kabuga is there for both jurisdictions. The MICT itself will also just need a lot of cooperation from the Rwandese government. Uh, the Rwanda government would need to give cooperation to the MICT for them to be able to, to, to properly prosecute this case. So I, I, ideally it's the the agreement between the two institutions, um, the Rwanda government and the MICT, is and collaboration amongst the two of them is very crucial for the success of this case. Do you, from your experience in in monitoring those trials that were transferred by the former uh, Rwanda tribunal over to the Rwandan authorities. Um, I can remember at times there were there were some issues with uh, whether the defence had enough funding, whether they had long enough time to prepare and so on. I mean, would you say that now those issues are all gone, that, that the Rwandan justice system is really up and running, um, you know, effectively? What I would say is having, during the period that I was monitoring the transferred cases, it is true there were numerous complaints over the fairness of the trial process and a variety of other issues. These were the, the issues that, as a team that was mandated under ICJ to monitor the cases, we, we, we brought to the knowledge of the MICT through our consistent monitoring reports. And where there were substantive concerns that, that were raised, uh, the residual mechanism did actually intervene by uh, writing to the Rwanda government and asking them to remedy any shortcomings uh, that were affecting the process of a fair trial. So in essence, is I don't think that the process was perfect. I don't think the process was perfect also for trials that was, were held at the ICTR. But I think the Rwanda government showed commitment, has shown commitment over the years to redress areas where it, it's been highlighted um, that there were shortcomings that were were affecting due process and fair trials for the accused persons that they were trying. I think that's the greater importance of having a monitoring mechanism in place when cases are transferred. And we've seen that with most of the transfer cases, even from other jurisdictions, where at least there is, the, the, the government is answerable um, to to the, the residual mechanism and ensures that they are, they are trying to adhere to the international standards agreed on for the trial processes. But if we look at Kabuga now, he's very old. Uh, he's 84. Um, ICTR cases are quite long or international justice cases are quite long. You know, will he be likely to make the end of the trial period at all? I think we can only speculate on this one. A lot of us did not think he was alive that long um, until he, his arrest. Um 
But I think the most important issue to focus on right now should be at least that he's now in custody and that the wheels of justice will start rolling soon so that uh, despite him having spent 26 years on the run, that there'll be a semblance of justice that will start rolling and victims can actually participate in ensuring that he's brought to account for, 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 for his role in the genocide and in the crimes against humanity that were committed in, in Rwanda. That said, if he dies in trial, he won't be the first. So uh, we saw Slobodan Milosevic's case also. But I think there's significance in putting him to trial to help those who are affected by the acts that he perpetrated. Start, uh, continue with your healing journey and their healing process. Thank you very much for your time, Stella. Thanks for, for your insights um, from the time of your, uh, your monitoring trials and what you're looking forward to. Um, I'm sure we'll uh, have a chance to have another chat uh, again about this. Yeah, thank you so much, Stella. Okay, thank you very much. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.